Hello and welcome to a special episode of FW Presents Find Your Joy, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am full of joy because my guest this episode is a fellow podcaster that I have known for years, but we've only recorded together once before this, way back when we talked about the secret origin of that greatest of Green Lanterns, Nort. He is the host of Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delights, as well as the co-host of the Fantasticast, The Overlooked Dark Knight, and Listen to the Prophets. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Andrew Leyland. What's up, Andy? Uh, hello, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Although I invited myself on the show, didn't I, really? <laughs> yeah, now you that I think made, about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you made the mistake in a previous episode that I was listening to of saying, if you've got something that you want to talk about, about your joy, feel free to nag somebody about it. And I nagged you. And people came out of the woodwork after I said, <laughs> I like, okay, I guess I know what I'm going to be recording for the next seven months. <laughs> Well, that, that's nice, isn't it? That yeah. a lot of people are actually willing to talk about something fun. Because yeah. it seems to me that at the minute, um, Nathaniel just talked about this on, a, on one of his Counselor Geeks YouTube videos. The, the videos that get the most hits are the ones where he's been negative. Mm, yeah. And he doesn't like it, but that's the way it is. And I, I can't be done with stuff like that. I don't want to listen to somebody just talking about how much they hate something all the time. We all don't like stuff. And that's fine if you want to do a show and, and you put in the side, like you just you dislike The Last Jedi. And I appreciated your reasons for not liking The Last Jedi. But there are some people out there, it's just, well, it's got too much Rose Tico in it. And you're like, oh, go away. <laughs> right. So the fact that you've got a show that is dedicated to, no, this stuff gives me a happy is great. And I think there should be more of it. But I think that's the Fire and Water Network all over, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly where we've tried to sort of redirect our, a lot of my energy, at least, after having some more negative experiences in the past year. So <laughs> just wanted to be like, you know, I, I exactly just like what you said, I don't have time for this. Let's, let's be happy a little bit. So <laughs> now getting back to what we are talking about and what brings us joy, for those of you listening – you might be shocked to hear that Andy is here to talk about a Spider-Man comic. I know, it, it sounds crazy, but it's true. Let's be fair here. I got in touch with you and said, uh, I'd be interested in doing Joy. And you said, what do you want to talk about? And I gave you a list. You did. And we whittled down that list and it ended up being Spider-Man. <laughs> you did, you did. <laughs> I mean, the list the list ran the gamut of it from Conan, Criminal, Star Wars and Spider-Man. And this is what we settled on. So. I know. I was like, you know what? I don't think Andy gets enough opportunity to talk about <laughs> Spider-Man on his other podcast. Hey, I, I never get bored of talking about spider-man but I, I didn't come to you and say let's talk about spider-man <laughs> well hey when the universe steers you in a particular direction yeah. you may as well go with it and it did steer us and i will explain why i was so keen to talk about this one but i'll do it towards the end of our discussion after we've talked a little bit about it um and the issue that we are talking about specifically is going to be peter parker the spectacular spider-man issue 58 which was originally published back in 1981 but before you tell us why this brings you joy, Andy, for anyone listening who might not know for some reason, how and when did you discover Spider-Man and why do you love the character so much? My gran tells a story of me being in my high chair watching reruns of the 60s cartoon because I'm not that old um, and being terrified of the full face mask. Mm. And that is my earliest memory of Spider-Man. But then I discovered, uh, well, it's a confluence of events. My my mum married the man who is now my dad, my stepfather, and he had boxes full of Marvel comics. 
the British Marvel reprints, and one of which was Spider-Man Comics Weekly and Mighty World of Marvel and all other stuff like Planet of the Apes and, and all that governments. And it was Spider-Man that I gravitated to. And I started buying the weekly Spider-Man comic as it was published at the time, which was publishing around this era, because this will have been a little bit later than this, probably 81, 82-ish. So we were always slightly behind because we were publishing them weekly. So we had to kind of chop them up to pad them out. Now, fortunately, Spider-Man had amazing, spectacular and Marvel team up. So it was quite easy to keep a weekly title going. And he's just always been my favorite character uh, from the old Marvel Tales reprints that did all the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko stuff. The British Marvel UK were printing little pocket books, little black and white pocket books with two issues per edition. They were really cheap, really cheap black and white paper. But uh, I devoured all of them. And there's just something about, it's Peter Parker that appeals to me, not so much the Spider-Man. And he's one of those characters where the two of them are essentially interchangeable. You know, you can have the argument that the Batman is the real person and Bruce Wayne is the facade. And you can have the argument about, well, which one is the disguise with Superman and all of that stuff. But Peter Parker is Spider-Man and Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And some of us go out for a run to get away from the stresses of the day. Some people at the gym, some people do whatever they need to do. Peter goes out and be Spider-Man. That's his release from everyday life but the troubles that he has as peter carry over into the spider-man's life and which is in this issue mm-hmm. another reason particularly for this era is i don't think peter parker's peter parker doesn't get a lot of love anyway the entire series doesn't get the love that amazing gets but roger stern's run on this is very much a prelude to what he would do on amazing but again doesn't get the love that amazing gets and it's just as good hmm. It strikes me, and I'll kind of mention that because you know I have been, I've been a Spider-Man fan for almost as long as I've been a comics fan, um, and I think I, I'm just I'm just a wee too young to have like concrete rem- memories of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Like I grew up knowing that that was a thing and that was existing, but I didn't really I didn't watch it. I didn't have those memories like kind of like baked in. So it feels like my first memory of Spider-Man was. Uh, the the Secret Wars toy like I didn't ha- I I think I only had three Secret Wars action figures and I didn't get them like from the store they were like hand me downs or somebody like gave them to me or something or something but I remember having Spider Man Captain America and Doctor Doom <laughs> um so I just like I he, but he was one of those characters like like with you know Superman Batman Wonder Woman like I felt like I've always kind of known who Spider Man was. Um, but once I did start going to comic stores and collecting and picking things up off the racks, which was right around the early 90s, you know, Spider-Man was one of those ones like if there wasn't a good X-Men or Batman book that week, then I would pick up a Spider-Man book or something like that. Mm. And over the years, because I have always enjoyed it, and a lot of it is the the inner soap opera, the soap opera of when he's not dressed up in costume because of how compelling Peter Parker is as a man and a protagonist. I've always kind of enjoyed his stories, like kind of no matter what I've been reading. But, you know, I, I went back with the essentials and started diving into his, the character from the beginning. So now I consider myself a fairly well-read Spider-Man fan. Um, I've read, you know, most of the first 100 issues of amazing um, big chunks around the Secret Wars comics, like in the middle and late 80s and then certainly early 90s and then more recent stuff. But there are definitely blind spots with my Spider-Man fandom, and this, uh, a big chunk of this whole series, this spectacular Spider-Man, certainly the, with the issue that you picked up, like this whole era, 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not familiar with, like even some of the supporting characters here that I'll I'll ask you about once we get into that. Mm. Um, so uh, this was this was very fun to kind of discover that, and and it's kind of it's always nice to sort of see. It's like, man, I I have no idea who these other people that he's going to college <laughs> with are. Like I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have some questions, but um, but before we get into that, since Spider-Man is your favorite character, and this is partially inspired um, by um. You and Steve Lacey, just as we're recording this, just uh, like a few months ago now, did the the uh, Ask Me Anything with the, your uh, Fantasticast coverage. So just a few little questions about your love of Spider-Man. Who is your favorite love interest for Spider-Man and or Peter Parker? Gwen Stacy. Okay. Because? Uh, I honestly felt that Gwen wasn't boring. I felt that Gwen was the stability that Peter needed in his life after he left Aunt May and he needed a rock to keep him grounded. And when he wasn't living with Aunt May anymore, he was all over the place. He was at college. He was doing photos for the Bugle. His life pulled him in many, many different directions. Being Spider-Man didn't help him that. And Gwen was this steady rock for him. And when she was written properly, she was a really strong and interesting character who was every bit as smart as Peter was and capable of standing up for herself. When she was written badly, she was a simpering irritant. And I think, unfortunately, Jerry Conway took the simpering irritant aspects of her character, and that's why I ended up killing her. I will agree that the death of Gwen made Murray Jane as a character. Because before, if you go back and read all those issues again, Murray Jane is flighty. I mean, people have ascribed this to the fact that she's doing any number of drugs because it was like <laughs> 1968. And I'm not willing to go that far, but she certainly was somebody who was flighty. And we later on discover she's hiding her own pain and her own background and all that stuff. But up until Gwen died, Murray Jane isn't a viable partner for Peter. And I still argue to this day, despite the many, many brickbats I get whenever I say this, she wasn't a suitable marriage material for Peter. They weren't compatible to be married. And the reason I say that is my personal opinion on this is, and it goes back into what I love about Spider-Man is as a kid, when he was picking and choosing, he was at different points in his life. This was a character that changed. Mm -hmm. You could read flash comics. Barry Allen never changed. Right. And Batman and Superman and all that. But Peter, the the comics I was picking up new in the eighties were not the reprints where he was in high school. So you had this wealth of background to him that was just fascinating to me as a as a kid, especially seeing as it wasn't as easy to fill those gaps in as it is now. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Murray Jane did evolve from being what she was when the death of Gwen kind of hit both of them in that, Jesus, we're only 19 and we've lost a friend, because that's how old I think they were supposed to be when Gwen died. Mm. But Peter and Gwen, Peter and Murray Jane, sorry, were in the right place at the right time to help each other through that particular tragedy. And then when that's over, they I really think they should go their separate ways. And they should have used that as a and the smart ones took Murray Jane off the table. Because she's very, very rarely in the Roger Stern era or the Tom DeFalco era till the back end. And I think that was smart. And I because I don't think that the marriage material piece of Mary Jane. So I always I always think of it as being Gwen, even though she was long dead before I discovered the strip. Alright. Cool. Cool. Good answer. Um, who is your favorite supporting character not named J. Jonah Jameson? <laughs> um I like Flash Thompson. Yeah, me too. Because if you again, if you go back and read the Lee Dick, he was Flash is a dickhead. 
There is no <laughs> no dispute in that. But Peter is just as much as a dickhead. And that's why he's a great character. Mm-hmm. Because he's not always likable. There's that brilliant moment in um, the one where Flash gets kidnapped by Doctor Doom. It's a very early issue, maybe issue five, I think. Yeah. And um, Flash is dressed as Spider-Man and Doctor Doom kidnaps him thinking that he's Spider-Man. And Peter has that one moment, it's a little moment, it's a brief moment, it's only one panel, where he thinks, if I do nothing, my problems are over. And he's got this sadistic grin on his face. And then he snaps out of it, almost as instantly as he thinks it. He snaps out of it, goes, no, I can't do that. And that's what makes the relationship perfect. Flash is a dickhead, but Peter can be a dickhead as well. And again, it's the evolution of their friendship over the years. And it's one of the reasons I totally despised the John Byrne revamp of Spider-Man is that he just reverted everyone to what they were in the 60s. Mm. And suddenly Flash and Peter were antagonists again. Whereas they'd moved beyond that, they'd evolved beyond that. And part of that is Gwen and Mary Jane. It's Gwen and Murray Jane bringing Peter into the little circle who hung around in the coffee bean and Flash realising that Peter's not that bad a guy. I mean, it starts before that. There's that really good bit in a latter Ditko issue where Peter takes all of the blame for a fight that he's had with Flash from the head teacher. He doesn't blame Flash or anything. And Flash overhears it and he goes into the principal's office and says, actually, that's not how it went down. And that's the first inkling you get that there's more to Flash Thompson than perhaps you think. So I like Flash, and I really don't like that he was killed unceremonially in Amazing Spider-Man 800 just because they felt they needed a death. They needed a shock moment at the end of that issue, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, I always liked their their relationship, and their, it seemed kind of one of the most authentic type of like friendships that would grow over, you know, from the course of, you know, high school to adulthood. I like, I mean, I remember uh, there was a guy that I knew in, you know, junior high or something like seventh grade or something that I kind of thought he was a jerk, but we had a mutually, a mutual friend in common. So we kind of like, were kind of on the periphery of each other. And then over the course of the next, you know, four or five years, that mutual friend kind of vanished from our life. And it was just the two of us hanging out. And all of a sudden, you know, he's a, he's a great friend and everything. So that, that connection between Peter and, and Flash seemed a little bit like, yeah, they can be petty dicks to each other when they're in high school, but eventually that goes away and you realize, hey, it's just a person. So yeah, yeah, you're not at high school for the rest of your life. Right. So you don't need to you don't need to be bound by those social, you know, clicks and constraints. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I liked how they developed. Alright. Your favorite A list Spidey villain. And you can define this as, you know, like one of the villains who's been in one of the movies or just somebody who's like one of like the, the you know the the original Ditko creations however you want to but your favorite a-list big popular spider-man villain a dr octopus yeah <laughs> hands down dr octopus he was always for me spider-man's main antagonist far more than the green goblin mm-hmm. um the the way the stories are told the way that they're built up there's more of a connection between peter and otto in that they were both scientists who had an accident happen to them. I don't subscribe to this idea that Peter was one step away from being a villain at all times. I'll tell you for why, if you're interested. In Amazing Spider-Man Fantasy 15, right, Mm -hmm. Peter gets his powers. There are people out there, professional writers, who argue that Peter is one step away from being a villain. No, he isn't, and I'll tell you for why. In Amazing Spider-Fantasy 15, he gets his powers. What does he do? He does not go out and rob a bank like Electro or Sandman. He thinks, how can I make money legally? Right, right. That is not somebody who's one step away from being a supervillain. 
Yeah, I've I've always thought kind of the opposite that a lot of his villains are one Uncle Ben away from just yeah. being yeah. having more of a straight and narrow path. Like if they had I, that influence, Sandman, you know, you know, Flint Marco or, or somebody else might have said, "Okay, I have this great power now. How do I use it responsibly?" Yeah. That's exactly right. And Otto starts from the same place Peter starts, essentially. They both uh, a wannabe scientist and an established scientist. We don't really know a lot about Otto from beforehand in the original story by Lee Ditko. That's all been filled in later. But we get that he was respected, although slightly mocked because he was probably a bit of an oddball. I, I always thought Londo Malari from Babylon 5 would have been a great Doctor Octopus. <laughs> uh, and then and it's the it's the accident that drives him insane. And that's what makes Dr. Octopus. And the fact that when Peter meets, when Spider-Man meets Dr. Octopus, it's always a battle of intelligence as well as fists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, the the big A-lister is Dr. Octopus. And for me, he's always head and shoulders above the Green Goblin yeah. as Spider-Man's main antagonist. Yeah, agreed. Um, and then your last question for this round, uh, your favorite lower tier Spidey villain, your favorite Mort or your favorite C or D list villain. Uh, actually, this issue. I love the ringer in this issue. <laughs> I, honestly, that's the reason that I, the one of the reasons I narrowed this down was I just love this guy and how shit he is. <laughs> he is. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I, I would have said somebody like um, Hammerhead. I, I've always. Oh, just I, I don't think Hammerhead's a C list. I think Hammerhead in the right hands can be really good. I thought you mean somebody like Rocket Racer or oh, Big Wheel. <laughs> no, I, well, I should have. I should have. Like, yeah, clarified it. Not quite to that that level, but um. <laughs> Oh, that CB guy. It was the CB guy. Gosh, and he wasn't really a bad guy, though, was he? I yeah. can't even remember his name, but he, he was a, he was terrible. <laughs> I also, gosh, who was? I think he, I think they called him Digger. He was in the Straczynski run. Um, he was basically like a gamma radiated Solomon Grundy. Oh, right. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Yeah, yeah. yes. Spider Man has a number of, of E list bad guys. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, not waste any more time. Let's get into this issue, uh, which, as I teased, and I'll get more into it, has a very surprising connection to my Spider-Man origin, um, but I'll explain that after you've recapped the issue. So, Andy, please tell us about the story from Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 58. Uh, the cover is by John Byrne and Joe Rubenstein, and aside from the blurb, it's textless, really, um, which highlights just its magnificent composition. The ringer stood on a cornice piece on top of a, a skyscraper, firing rings at uh, Spider-Man, who's avoiding them quite deftly. Here's the web swinger you demanded, fighting, joking, defying death in a savage rooftop battle, ravaged by the ringer. It's it's. One of Byrne's finest covers. I love Joe Rubenstein working over John Byrne. Apparently, Byrne had problems with John Joseph Rubenstein, which comes as no surprise <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I think this Byrne guy has some talent. I bet he goes somewhere. Um, but I also think, you know, what? he might have a bit of an ego. Yeah, he might have a bit of a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Ring out the old "Ring in the new" was written by Roger Stern, penciled by John Byrne, inked by Vinnie Coletta which isn't as bad as you think it's going to be. Lettered by Gene Simic, coloured by Ben Sean, edited by Tom DeFalco, and editor-in-chiefed by Jim Shooter. It's quite a dense issue, so get yourself comfortable. Peter Parker is settling into life as a teaching assistant and graduate student at ESU when he runs into Greg Salinger. Salinger is none too pleased to find himself in Chem 101 due to an administrative cock-up, but soon feels foolish when Peter reveals that he's the teacher. 
Elsewhere, the Tinkerer's old place is being watched by the cops following his recent bust. This does not please Anthony Davis, the ringer, who was planning on picking up his new suit from the Tinkerer. Using his particular matter condensers, which can turn soot and smog out of the air, he sneaks into the Tinkerer's den. He tries out his new equipment and is delighted. However, a super strong man busts in and beats on the ringer, taking him out pretty easily. Carrying the ringer in one hand and a crate in the other, he leaves. Back at ESU, Salinger quite enjoyed Peter's class, but it's the after-class activity Peter is interested in. Deb Whitman and Phil Chang are holding court over Steve Hopkins for playing a prank on Marcy Kane. It's over the top and ridiculous, but it's all a gag at Steve's expense to reveal Marcy's new look. All these subplot shenanigans allow Peter to reconnect with Deborah Whitman, and they arrange a date for later. The mystery man, meanwhile, has the ringer hogtied, and he orders him to fight Spider-Man, or else the mystery man will detonate a new addition to the ringer's suit, a ring of pure explosive. The ringer wants none of this filth, he just wants a quiet life, but the mystery man is insistent. And thus, as Spidey swings off to his date with Deb, the ringer attacks. Spider-Man can't take this loser seriously, and after handing him a humiliating beatdown, he leaves to meet Deb. After a pleasant day, Peter tells Deb to meet him at his apartment to continue the evening, as he has a few things to wrap up first. These things are the ringer, and by take care of, he means wrap the ringer up and leave him for the cops. Peter gets home just in time to meet Deb and continue the evening. Way Across town, the mystery guest is revealed. He only wanted to use the ringer to get data on how Spider-Man fights for when they next meet. For this is the Beetle, and the next battle will see the Beetle victorious. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Good ending, that. Yeah. So, of the literally thousands of Spider-Man stories that you could have picked, why did you <laughs> choose this one? Why does this one bring you so much joy? Uh, well, one, it's one of the first American editions of Spider-Man I picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. It, it probably wasn't brand new. It was probably about a year or six months later. But I do remember having this one uh, as the American edition. I also had a Spanish one. Okay. We were on holiday in Spain, and I saw a Spanish edition of Spider-Man, which my mum bought me. And it's why I know some Spanish (laughs) phrases. Not many, but some Spanish, because it was in colour as well. That was exciting. I had the American American edition, I need to clarify, came after I had the Spanish one. Okay. But I'd already read this story in the British reprints. (laughs) Do you see how this works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons that I picked this. It was one of the first American editions that I managed to get hold of. Secondly, like I said earlier, the Roger Stern run on Spectacular is every bit as good as his run on Amazing, and I don't think it gets as much love, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think one of the reasons it may not get as much love is it doesn't have a consistent artist, Mm. and this is the only one of them that John Byrne drew. But other than that, it's a a good one-issue story. It's quite a light-hearted story. Uh, given that Spider-Man, especially recently, become this consistent loser, it's nice to have an issue where Peter's on a high. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> Ringer is a spectacular loser on every conceivable level. <laughs> but that's what makes this great. There's no angst. There's no sturm and drang. Mm-hmm. There's no, I've got to get this medicine to Aunt May before she dies. It's just a good, fun issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. 
Yeah, this is like I got to this one and I was like, okay, this is Peter Parker when his, you know, the Parker luck has been on a, a high streak for a little while. Like, yeah. Thinking about like the um, the recent uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse animated movie where you got the multiple versions of Spider-Man. This was the blonde-haired Chris Pine Peter Parker yeah. who's yeah, this, been this at this Chris for a while Pine. and and knows how to do the job because I'm thinking like, yeah, he's like he's on his way to a date. The ringer stops by to fight him. He basically indulges the ringer in this little fight for like a page or something. He's like, okay, this isn't worth my time. I gotta get back to my date. And just like leaves him there. And go, yeah, the great, like, the and, great. And then he's yeah. like sitting at his date and he's like, hey, you know, this is going really well, but if you give me like five minutes, I just I gotta take care of something on my way back home. And he goes back and beats up the ringer again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like the first one. It's alright, I'll 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 humor this guy for a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, like you say, after two pages or two or three pages of fighting him, he's like, I've not got time for this shit. <laughs> and he just goes. And can you imagine Batman doing that? Can you imagine Batman just ditching a fight and going, oh, I've got a date. I've got, I've got an elsewhere to be. I'm sorry. But Spider-Man's like, oh, I've had enough of this. Poppy <laughs> trots. It's like one time when Batman realized, you know what? I really don't have to be here to arrest Two-Face. I think the cops got this one. I'm just- yeah, I've got all the things to do. <laughs> Bruce Wayne needs to be at that charity benefit. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really good about that is when he comes back later, it literally is. There's no foreplay this time around. Yeah. Whereas in the in the first fight, you got the impression Spider-Man was just humoring him. and But in the second one, it's just like Spidey's just on the offensive from start to finish. And the Rinko is just no match for him. <laughs> but this is where his sense of humor really comes out. He's just mocking this guy <laughs> mercilessly throughout the entire fight. And the Ringer makes the mistake of saying he's had to have all this dental work from the last time that he fought a superhero, which, of course, he just like red rag to a bull right. to Spider-Man because every time he punches him after that it's in the teeth and he's just like oh sorry forgot about the teeth and then he'll punch him again or kick him in the face oops sorry forgot about the teeth and he's just like you can see why people think Spider-Man's a bit of a dick sometimes yeah. oh gosh he like he swings and like kicks the ring in the stomach tw- <laughs> like right in the stomach and he's he's actually like oh my stomach and he's like oh I bet that hurts doesn't it yeah, well, at least you won't be thinking about your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just abs- And it's beautifully choreographed by mm. John Byrne. John yeah. Byrne's artwork in these scenes. I mean, we've mentioned Vinicoletti and the inks that it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And it really isn't. This may be one of Vinny's best inking jobs. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't find any detriment or any, like, there are a few scenes, like, where there's no background or something, obviously, but it's, like, it's usually, like, during the fight or during a dramatic moment where the background wouldn't be necessary anyway. You know the setting. Mm. You know everything that's going on. It doesn't interfere. It doesn't detract from anything. So I thought it was, I thought the art was terrific. It was a very kind of streamlined burn, but it was, yeah, it was good. I dug it. Yeah, I mean, the body language is spot on. Um, there's even one or two panels that look like direct lifts or homages to, to Ditko. Yeah. Uh, the one, there are no page numbers in my comicsology copy, unfortunately, right. but the one where he's leaping across and Spider-Man's upside down and kind of bitch slaps, for want of a better phrase, <laughs> yeah. the ring. Excuse me. That that looks very much like it's from um, uh, the Sinister Six issue without actually being direct lift. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the, the shot of multiple Spider-Men as he's moving so fast that the naked eye yeah. couldn't keep up yep. with him. That's brilliant. And even, you know, Vinny's fam- famous for deleting, erasing lines and stuff. But the level of detail in the scene at the sushi bar where he meets Deb Whitman for yeah. the date 
and all of those rings, you know, Byrne doesn't skimp on the rings. Right. And Vinny, Vinny inks every one of them. Yeah. So no. it, the artwork is exceptionally fluid throughout. This is a very, he's not the skinny Spider-Man that Byrne would draw when he did chapter one. He is slightly more built, but he's not as husky as John Romita drew him. Right, right. Yeah, gosh, yeah. Even just thinking about going to the first page, and I'm not going to do like page by page notes because there's no need for that. But just getting to that first page, I, I, I mean, we've we've all seen kind of the image of like the the head of P, of Spider-Man, like with a half mm-hmm. Peter, half Spider-Man face, and everything is a nice way of delineating, you know, like what the either the spider sense going off or just kind of like a reminder of the dual identity of the. Piece. This might be the first time I've seen the entire body kind of split down the middle, and I got to this page and I was like, oh, composite Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, that's brilliant. Well, but, uh, I think I think this may be the first time that was ever done. I don't even remember if it was ever done again. Yeah, it could be. But the thing is, like, I really like it as a shorthand because, like, like you said, like, if this is your first time reading a Spider-Man comic or your first comic or something, which for people like this might be their experience, they open it up. Well, you're not starting off with an action sequence, and you're not starting off with your hero. It opens up with two guys meeting on a college campus, okay? Is that what the young readers really want to read, or do they want to see Spider-Man kicking the crap out of this guy who's way below his league? But that just, what Byrne does there, just showing it's half Peter, half Spider, and everything like that, is a cool little shorthand to let us know, okay, this is who he is. And we're just you're you're catching the hero in his downtime and everything, but it's a nice little short. I just I thought it worked really well. I like that image of him split down the middle as our sort of thematic entry point for the story. What I love as well, Roger Stern just seeding the subplot so seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Like this guy here will turn out to be the fool killer. That's what I was has- thinking. I knew I was like Greg Salinger sounds familiar, but I didn't. Okay, so he's he's not the first fool killer though. No, no, he's the he's the. There's only one issue of Amazing Spider-Man upcoming that Roger Stone wraps all this story up. Okay, but there's there's a line of dialogue here where he says those fools in admin. Oh, and just yeah. that little seeding that this is going somewhere, and then a couple of pages later, the the TV in the dorm is on the trail of Spider-Man. That's setting up the next two part issue. Yeah, and yeah. I've long thought. I don't know if this is a popular opinion. Is Roger Stone the best writer? that has ever worked on Amazing Spider-Man or Spectacular Spider-Man, or Spider-Man generally. I know Straczynski has all the plaudits and the awards and the paychecks and the Clint Eastwood films under his belt. He also has since... 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 To his credit. But Roger Stern may be, I think, the best writer to ever work on Spider-Man. I mean, I would defer to you because you certainly have more reading experience. And... Roger Stern is somebody who I have started to appreciate more just within the last two years, like his whole body of work. Um, so I, I definitely think he's an incredible talent. And what I have read about his Spider-Man stuff was always entertaining. So I am interested in going back and reading more of this spectacular Spider-Man run that he did. In terms of just the the talent and the sophistication of the storytelling, or in terms of the what he did for Spider-Man, I mean, how would you compare him to Stan Lee? Uh, I think he's a better writer than Stan Lee because Stan Lee created the world along with Steve Ditko and then embellished upon it with John Romita. Mm-hmm. But there is an awful lot of Stan Lee issues that are wheel spinning. Roger Stern, his entire run, if you include the Peter Parker stuff and the amazing stuff, just the way it's plotted and the way he considers what the characters would do. He's one of those writers, I think, who really puts his own ego to the side 
to concentrate on the character that he's writing. Mm-hmm. And I felt this about when he did Superman as well. It's not that I don't... There are other writers who are probably are as good, if not better, on a technical level, like maybe Straczynski. James DiMatteis mm-hmm. wrote some brilliant Spider-Man stories, particularly his run with Sal Buscema. But I think Roger Stern left an indelible mark on it in the sense that not only were his stories incredibly tightly plotted, like this one, this comic is dense, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about Chris Claremont, <laughs> but this, this is a dense... 20-page comic book story without any of the cliches that Clermont would pepper his stories with. And none of the dialogue feels overly expositional. I mean, page two is riddled with dialogue. It all feels like a conversation. Yeah. Even though it's giving us information. But he's subplotting and he's long-term planning. If you read this Peter Parker run, Roderick Kingsley's in this run. And reading this run on Spectacular makes his ultimate reveal that Roderick Kinsley is the Hobgoblin make a hell of a lot more sense. Right. He was seeking him from the beginning. It's all there once you know to look for it. His writing of Jonah is one of the best interpretations of Jonah in the entire canon. Jonah is he's steadfast, he's loyal, he's an excellent newspaper man, but he's got this blind spot when it comes to Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He also, he was one of the few writers who basically embraced the new status quo of where Peter is at the moment, a teaching assistant at ESU, and gave him an entirely new supporting cast. Right. And he fleshed out that supporting cast and he gave them all little subplots. And that kind of died away a bit when he moved over to Amazing which is a shame, but we did get Harry and Murray Jane back. But I missed Steve Hopkins and I missed Marcy Cade and I missed Deborah Whitman and all of that. And it was left to, to like Bill Mantlo to wrap up those stories because he took over Spectacular after Roger left. So I think it's it's a case of Roger was, was a writer who's technically very proficient. His stories were always to the point. They never felt expositional. His, his stories feel like stories written for an adult audience, but one that doesn't pander as well that children like i was 10 or so when i read this can read this and love it but if you're an adult you can read it and you don't feel like you're reading something beneath you it feels truly all ages in the best way yeah. and when we get to dan slar and straczynski it's been written for adults mm-hmm. and i think spider-man loses a little bit when it's written solely for adults kids should be able to read spider-man and love it in the same way that i did when i was a kid yeah agreed yeah yeah, and getting back to what you were saying about sort of like the density of the storytelling, like when I was going through and kind of like making my notes, I was like, okay, let me go back that that initial meeting between Peter and Greg. Like, how many pages was that? I was like, oh, that's it's just one. It's, <laughs> it's one. Page. It's, it's we get the opening spe- we get the opening splash page, and then it's just page two. They almost run into each other, except Spider Sense like he does the maneuvering and everything, and then they go they have that whole just dialogue scene interacting. And so I was like, I was like, oh, that's all one page that's an economy of storytelling so yeah, yeah that was, it's, that was it's brilliant isn't it? yeah that was really well done um yeah I'm, I'm glad that you told me like some of the some of the other characters at esu that peter was hanging out with because i would like to know a little bit more about their stories because yeah that one scene just kind of in the middle where they're pulling a prank on one of the other guys i was like i have no idea who any of these people are i don't think so. well this this was one of the few damp squibs of the roger stern run marcy started wearing headbands for some reason mm-hmm. and Steve and, and uh, who's Phil. Steve Hopkins? Who's the other one? Phil, yeah. yeah. Phil Hockberg uh, started going, well, what's going on here? What's going on here? And they ripped the wig off, the headband off to reveal something. I can't even remember what. And it turned out she wore wigs or had shaved her head or something. And then the big reveal is she's grown her again. 
And it's like, what What was all that about? And yeah. was there supposed to be a subplot there where she was ill mm-hmm. and maybe a her had come out or maybe she was having treatment for something? I don't right. know, whatever. They, they abandoned that. Right. But it was nice in the middle to have all these characters who you did. Dr. Sloan is another one that you mm-hmm. got to know over Peter's tenureship as a teaching assistant. And again, this fed into this whole idea that as Peter moves through his life, he meets new acquaintances. One of the things I love about the Ditko era to the Ramita era, or the high school era to the college era, is he leaves loads of people behind and meets new people. And that was me. When I left high school, nobody I was in high school with went to college with me. It was a completely new cohort of people mm-hmm. that I was with. So that always felt realistic to me. And it's one of the things I don't like when they do external media is that Gwen's in high school with him. Right, or Mary right. Jane's in high school with him. I like that idea that as he moves through life, he meets different people. Okay. I do have to mention why, when I got to the end of this issue, it kind of blew my mind. Um, because, again, I had never read this issue before you recommended it, and this was just one issue on the list that you... I was like, okay, let me read the Spider-Man issue and see if this is something that we could talk about. And I got to the end, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I do need to, to talk about this one. Because... My first issue of Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man comic I remember buying and reading, it wasn't an issue of Amazing Spider-Man. It wasn't an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. It was ten years after this issue came out. It was the fourth and final issue of the miniseries The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man. And The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, a big chunk of the plot is The Ringer's widow, Layla Davis... Is plotting is hatching like the scheme to double cross the beetle in large part for what he did in this particular issue. So I got right. to the end with the reveal of this is the beetle in his new costume and everything. Which first of all, I, I didn't mention him beforehand because like uh, because uh, like I, when we asked the other question, but I've always really liked the beetle. I like this design for the costume, like the with the purple and the blue and everything. Um, now I don't. I, even though he is, you know, part of the Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, I don't consider him just a Spider-Man villain. I think of him kind of as a more utility villain for the Marvel Universe. Um, hmm. Like, it could have been in the the uh, Masters of Evil. I've always thought he would have been a really good villain for Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, just because of like, oh, the yeah. theme and the flying and everything. I thought he would have been cool there, like, a, as a foe for them. But I like the character. I like his design. So when I got to the end, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is cool. And then I was like, and, like, Lightbulb kind of goes up. I was like, wait a minute. This is what set up that kind of why Layla, why the Ringer's widow was going after the Beetle in that miniseries. I was like, that was the first Spider-Man comic I read. So I went back and I reread that whole miniseries recently, and that was just a lot of fun to kind of get back into that. So yeah, that blew my mind. I was like, of all of the issues that Andy could have picked, like thousands of issues, I was like, this one connects <laughs> to the very first Spider-Man book I read. I was like, that is nuts. So yeah, that was that was a lot of fun when that connection came to me. Like we said earlier, when the universe is pointing you in a direction, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you may as well go in it. I love the Beetle. One of my favorite issues uh, early on is the one where they're fighting the Beetle outside Johnny Storm's girlfriend's house. <laughs> yes. That's just a, an incredibly fun story. And again, going to, to Roger Stern's talent, he doesn't make a joke of the Beetle. He takes the Beetle and actually makes him a legitimate threat, especially over the next two issues. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I'll be reading those next. Just, I didn't. I didn't want to go too much further than than where we had for this issue because I just wanted to talk about this one in isolation. But uh, mm. yeah, no, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Like I, I completely understand why this seemingly random issue would be such a fun story, um, and in Spanish, no less. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, we'll read it as an adult. I, I didn't make this twig at all. He asks Deb over for the night. Yeah, and yeah. she and she goes. Yeah, <laughs> and and she does. But he's also like, he's like, come back to my apartment, but I'll meet you there. He's almost like, yeah, I got to run to the drugstore to pick something up first. Except, that, <laughs> except instead of you know, instead of picking up protection, he's going and beating up the ringer one more time. Uh, so I mean, I, I like. Did you have much experience with Deborah Whitman? No, I didn't really know who she was at all. Mm-hmm. I I knew the name, but I this ah, I don't I don't know if this is the first comic i've read with her but i i think i knew her by name only well deborah's um dr sloan's secretary and mm-hmm. she's she's quite this quiet introverted character who takes an interest in peter and he takes interest in her they kind of date off and on mm-hmm. i think this is I, I think i could be mixing my chronology up but i think sissy ironwood's around this time as well or she may be just a little bit before that everyone forgets sissy ironwood as a peter parker girlfriend mm-hmm. and deb kind of just gets parceled off when bill mantlow comes in um Peter's actually really mean to her. He convinces her she's insane. Oh, God. <laughs> so that she doesn't, because she figures out that he's Spider-Man. And um, this will later come back to him in Civil War. Peter David brings Deborah Whitman back. Oh, yeah. Um, once Peter reveals his secret, um, Deb Whitman writes this tell-all book, and Peter David brings her back and writes a story around that that's, that's quite fun. That's probably where I knew her best from. I forgot about that. But, yeah, I was reading that. I was reading around that time, so I would have read those Peter David issues. Mm. Uh, oh gosh this, yeah this was so much fun uh did you have any other final notes for this issue before we go no I, I think it just flows really well from beginning to end um the subplots are introduced nicely uh the the extra subplotry doesn't interfere with the story too much there's just lots of lovely little touches like peter brushing his teeth <laughs> I, I don't know why i like that when he's going on a date so he brushes his teeth that makes sense. And just there's loads of individual panels that we could point out as being beautifully fluid. But this isn't very expensive on Comixology, and they regularly have Spider-Man sales. Right, right, right. So if, if you find this one for in the 99-cent sale, uh, you could do yourself... You could do much worse than pick this up because it is just a jolly good, stunning one Spider-Man story, but with lots of subplots to keep you engaged. Yeah, I... I, I highly endorse this one this was a uh, so much fun if you can't find it in the back bins then on comiXology or marvel digital unlimited uh yeah this was a treat to read definitely brought me some joy um and i can understand why it brought you joy as well so uh yeah uh i think that's gonna wrap up this issue thank you very much for uh for being my guest and we'll have to we'll get you back at some point hopefully not as <laughs> it won't be as long as the last time that we recorded um and we can maybe talk about what that star wars issue that you recommended or something else a conan story but yeah well one of of the reasons that i dropped you the line was uh i I think i said in the text message it's just that me and you haven't done anything for ages yeah yeah really this this was just an excuse to get together with you and talk about a great comic um the one thing i try and always do is make it sound like we're just having a beer and if (laughs) if we could be in the same place we would have had a beer well yeah if it wasn't six in the morning where i am but (laughs) so well um we're going to wrap it up so uh that i can go back to start my day and you can go catch Superman the movie on the big screen. Congratulations. Hoorah! That sounds like it's going to be fun. 
where else can people find you in the podcastosphere? Uh, Policy Glittering Delights is my um, vanity project <laughs> where I talk about whatever the hell I want to. I'm currently looking at Star Trek Voyager and reappraising that and it's coming out quite well I have to say that's over on 2 it's not regular because those episodes take quite a long time to, to write but um, I've done over a hundred of them so go back and listen to some of them there'll be something on there that you like Hey Kids Comics is uh, on hiatus I, we essentially just do specials now yeah. Michael's now 22 years of age and he's off at university so we don't see him although I am seeing him today he's coming watching Superman with me so that'll oh, cool. be nice Oh, Overlooked Dark Knight is me and Michael Bailey looking at Overlooked Batman comics. Uh, we are currently planning what to do for this year, which is, is, is this his 80th birthday? This is indeed, yeah. Yeah. So we've got lots of plans for stories that we don't think get the love it deserves over its 80th birthday from all over Batman's publishing spectrum. And the fantastic cast with me and Steve is available every week or bi-weekly at the minute because life has got in the way. Uh, and we are currently barreling down towards the burn run. Yeah. We're, we're wrapping up Marv Wolfman and we're into Doug Mention's Senkovitz and then it's burn. Yeah. Very exciting. All right. Well, um, yeah. Thank you again for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. We'll definitely find some excuse. We don't even need a good excuse. We don't uh, need an excuse, Matt. <laughs> just talk about some good comics. We'll, we'll definitely find a way to collaborate again at some point in the near future. Um, and as always, Big thank you to everyone who listens to the show, those of you who help support us on social media, likes, shares, favorites, retweets, whatever. It's always appreciated. Uh, if you want to leave more feedback, uh, more detailed feedback, you can shoot me an email or post a comment on the website post, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, listeners. Until next time, everybody, go out and find your joy. Cause if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you like it,